Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Okay, welcome back to the Outdoor Feast podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. It's uh, early January. It's good to see pictures of everybody getting outside after the holidays. I'm seeing some ice fishing pictures, seeing some spearing pictures from Minnesota come through. It's all great stuff. Uh, This week on the podcast, I'm really excited to be bringing a conversation with Mariah Gladstone, who's the founder of Kitchen. Kitchen is an online cooking show that is re-indigenizing food for Native people. Mariah is incredible. She's been on TED Talks. She attended Columbia University in New York City with an engineering degree. She's currently working on a master's program at SUNY ESF with Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. And she's a member of the Blackfeet and Cherokee Nation. She lives in Western Montana. And so in DigiKitchen, she's bringing great recipes like amaranth crackers and bison butternut lasagna and blue corn crusted whitefish, accessible, delicious food that's meant to help people connect to their food and have control over it. Speaking of blue corn crusted whitefish, before we get into the podcast, Mark is here with me today. Mark, how are you? I'm doing well, Todd. I'm doing doing well. Yeah. Uh, I was just looking at that whitefish recipe. It looks really interesting. It looks delicious. And so let's talk a little bit about whitefish. You've been spearing here over the last week or so. Uh, I have to say, I listened to your podcast with John Kajorik and Devin and Don on dark house spearfishing, and I, I absolutely loved it. It was great. I felt like I was there with you, you know, like hearing you guys talk about the decoys and the spears and what makes a good spear and what makes a good lake. That was really cool. Yeah, we had we had fun. Uh, we were up in Superior National Forest. Uh, unfortunately, the, the fish weren't too cooperative uh, on that trip. Uh, but this last week they were. And like you said, uh, ended up getting uh, one really nice whitefish, about a three plus pound whitefish, uh, this last Sunday. And, uh, oh man, I made, I made, uh, I actually made, I also got some pike. So I, I made a fish stock with the pike carcasses, the Northern pike. And then I made a whitefish bisque with the whitefish. Oh man. I got, I got a new, a new go-to recipe. It was great. It sounds incredible. That sounds great. So the bisque then, what was that like? What uh, what goes into that with the whitefish? Yeah, it's really rich. Um, and so the base of it was a fish stock. And that's where when I saw this, so I, I pulled this recipe actually out of a out of a, a whitefish, a lake whitefish cookbook that the Michigan Sea Grant did a number of years ago. And they went around the Great Lakes to a bunch of chefs and said, hey, what, what's your whitefish recipe if you've got one? And this is one, it's, a, it's actually called a Mackinac whitefish bisque. And uh, apparently it was presented to a panel at the James Beard Society in, uh, in New York and, uh, and everyone loved it. And so it's, it's this very rich bisque that begins with a fish stock. So I made it out of the Northern Pike. And then you've got cream, butter, you've got uh, a mirepoix you're starting with. So, you know, carrots, celery, onion, and then 
you're adding the whitefish and basically poaching it in in the stock and then you're near the end actually you are actually uh blending everything together which is the one thing to be honest that i looking back on it i, I would have liked to have the chunks of fish in there Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was for what it was, this creamy, smooth bisque. And then you, you topped it at the very end with a creme fraiche and it was, it was, uh, it was to die for. It was so good. It sounds amazing. So yeah, that sounds so cool. I'm so glad that you got that opportunity to go. I love the podcast. I loved just hearing about, I, I don't remember if it was John or Don talking about the, uh, even that there was a, a book on all the different kinds of spears out there talking about that, talking about the nature of what draws you all to spearing and then to be able to tie it back to uh, an incredible recipe like you're talking about with this whitefish bisque just pulls it all together, right? Everything's connected. You've got this great opportunity. You're out there spearing and then you have a world-class dinner. It's a, it's remarkable. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, we've done a bunch of posts as part of this hard water hunter series uh, lately. I just did one a couple of days ago, John, John's new post on, on decoys. And, you know, there's, there's an entire like sort of a craft around each of these, whether it's the spears, the decoys, et cetera. And yeah, John mentioned he's got a book, this hardcover book that literally catalogs and gives the history of every, every uh, dark house spear maker in, uh, in America, which is pretty crazy. It is pretty crazy. I love that. And I love the fact that, you know, what you're doing is fairly accessible. It's fairly basic with equipment you get yourself a good spear and a good dark house people can do that it's on the ice you know it's it's like an accessible thing to be able to do it doesn't require thousands and thousands of dollars of technical equipment you know it's just something anybody can do yeah exactly it's 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 uh yeah well there is still some equipment i mean if you if you go back to the way people are doing i mean this is the original form of fishing uh of native peoples around the world in different areas obviously uh, cold areas where, where ice forms on the water. Uh, but I mean, pretty simple origins in which if you really want to break it down to its basics, it's, you know, a, a chisel or something to, to cut, break a hole in the ice, uh, a little decoy or something to draw, draw the, uh, the fish in and maybe something over you to block out the light and then a spear, uh, yeah. doesn't get much simpler than that. It's great stuff. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things here, Mariah is really articulate. Uh, she's been a public speaker. She is active in advocacy uh, for Native youth. Uh, she's just an incredible person to talk to. She's got some great perspective. Uh, and we talk about uh, the nature of Kitchen, why she's doing it, and what she's trying to accomplish, bringing storytelling and food to people in an accessible way. Uh, we also talk about this concept of food sovereignty, which is basically thinking in terms of having control over your food systems, right? And how you feed yourself. And we talk about that and what she's trying to do with that. Interestingly, I thought of a couple of questions to ask her, you know, like any good conversation after we got done, I had uh, thought of some questions and she responded afterwards. And so this isn't in the podcast, but I want to touch on two or three real things and then I'll get your perspective on it. One is I asked her afterward, what's the difference between food sovereignty and food security? And to paraphrase what she said, was she basically said food security is mainly about access to food, right? But food sovereignty includes food security. 
but it, it also includes the right to have a say in your own food systems and to feed yourself. And so the natural question for this community afterward was, well, okay, I could see where like hunting and angling and foraging and gardening might fit in. And so I was interested in her perspective on that. And she totally, she totally thinks that hunting and fishing and foraging and gardening are important parts of healthy food systems. And, you know, not only is it connecting people with good, healthy food, but it's connecting individuals to, to ecosystems. Does she hunt or fish herself or not? She does. So we talk in the beginning, she just got back uh, from an elk hunting trip in Montana and with her partner and her cousin. And I think her cousin harvested an elk. And so as we were recording back in early December, she and her partner had just got done processing the elk at their home. Um, and so what I asked her was, at, you know, after the fact was, and I'm going to put this in the show notes, was I said, Mariah, as a hunter who is also a member of, of the Blackfeet Nation, of the Cherokee Nation, uh, an advocate for indigenous communities, what do you think in terms of like challenges for Native people are in terms of hunting, uh, bringing people that part of that to um, to contribute to their food sovereignty? And her perspective was that, you know, some of the challenges, like she, in her experience, she lives, she lives in an area where she has access to great hunting and fishing, like, you know, the, the, the lands that she lives on give her plenty of hunting and fishing opportunities in, in Montana. But for some people in native communities, what she said was that navigating state laws regarding hunting rights um, can be tricky because they're kind of sometimes um, murky. And she said, like, some states don't require licensing for Native people, but some request reporting, say, for instance. And sometimes there's like poor understanding of treaty rights in terms of, you know, the hunting and fishing rights for Native people. So there's like, you know, there's like that whole process of like working through all that stuff for people. And I just thought that was kind of a really cool perspective to bring um, to the podcast and to the community. Yeah, it's uh, you know, food sovereignty isn't something that I would say is is a topic I I'm too familiar with or discuss a whole lot. So I'm really interested in hearing uh, hearing this discussion. And you know, she's right. It, you know, here in Minnesota, there there have been a lot of of um, issues, legal issues regarding uh, hunting and fishing rights and things like that. And it's a it's a uh, it's a very uh, divisive uh, topic in, in a lot of in a lot of circles. It's uh, which is unfortunate, but I think uh, I think this is a, a really good discussion. Like you said, food sovereignty versus food security. That's that's fascinating, and I think it's you know to a certain extent probably applies to all of us the way you describe it on how she defines it. Of you know as as we've progressively outsourced our entire food system to large multinational corporations, I think you lose that control, that sovereignty. And and so, you know, I think this is a, this is a perfect fit with the types of conversations we have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so too. And I think there's so many lessons that we can all learn from all the great work that Mariah is doing. And not only is she doing great work, helping people connect to their food, but she's making delicious food too. So yeah, um, she's got a, a balsamic manumen with uh, dandelion greens and manumen is, uh, is the native word for, for wild rice. And I just harvested a bunch of wild rice this last fall. So I think I'm going to have to try out, try out that recipe. <laughs> Although Right now, in the middle of uh, January, I don't have any dandelion greens. Is the problem? <laughs> <laughs> so we'll wait till spring on the dandelion That's greens. Right. So, right. all right, what do you say we get into this podcast with Mariah Gladstone of Indigi Kitchen? 
appreciate everybody listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. We're back with another episode of Outdoor Feast. Thanks for joining us again this week. Hope everybody's doing well. Back in mid-November, I was cruising through Twitter, and uh, I'm a SUNY ESF alum, and so I just happened to see a post they did about Mariah Gladstone, and and it had a link to Mariah's um, Indigi-Kitchen work, and so what it said was uh, check out her profile. Well, I'm glad I did. And uh, we reached out and Mariah's here on the podcast today. Thank you, Mariah, for joining us. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's a great pleasure. I love what you're doing. I guess what I'd like to do is tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and your vision and how you got started with Indigi Kitchen. We'll roll through all that stuff. But uh, you were out elk hunting recently, and I think this community will really appreciate an update on that. How did that go? I, you know, it's actually still elk season here, and I think I have until December 23rd to get an elk. Uh, my cousin did get an elk and capitalized on the use of my garage for a hanging space, and then he took off. So my partner and I ended up having to butcher the elk, um, but we had a lot of fun processing it and making sausage and um, still have some plans to make jerky, but also I'm on my quest for my own elk or deer. We'll see. We'll see what the the harvest will yield. <laughs> There's still time, right? There's still a few There's weeks. Still time. Anything can happen. So in Digi Kitchen here, thank you for joining us. And we're going to talk a little bit about your background first and just who you are and your vision for Indigi Kitchen, you know, creating this digital media and platform to talk about food sovereignty and bringing food back, um, access to it for indigenous people and for a whole lot for non-indigenous people to learn too. Uh, tell us a little bit about just your background and you know how you got started with all of this and like what your inspiration was and what you're trying to do. Yeah, sure thing. I was, um, I'm Blackfeet from Northwest Montana, grew up both on and off the reservation, um, which is in the, as I said, northwest corner of Montana, close to Glacier National Park. So I grew up both off reservation on the west side of the mountains and on reservation on the east side of the mountains. And my childhood was lucky in that I got to experiment a lot with food growing up. Um, my family, uh, my, mostly cousins, not direct family, but hunted. And so we often had wild game in the freezer um, and grew up knowing certain things about plants and just preparing fresh foods and things like that. Um, and then I actually went to college in New York City and my undergraduate degree is in environmental engineering um, because I was passionate about sustainability and interested in hopefully doing alternative energy stuff, working on uh, solving some of those problems related to our energy crisis. But after college, I went home and I was working on engineering management, wasn't really doing the things I was truly passionate about. And I ended up at a food sovereignty conference and ended up with this entire discussion about indigenous food systems and some of the diet-related crises that we're seeing in Indian country and recognizing that this has to be a, a huge systemic change of our diets. Um, I kind of jokingly said that I'm going to start a cooking show. It's going to be called Indigi Kitchen. And 
someone just retorted with some smart ass comment. Um, like, sure you are Mariah. Um, and so I had to do it then. Um, and so I put together the jankiest setup with a tripod that did not support the weight of my camera. It'd like Jerry rig it with a headband and a screw and, uh, used Windows Movie Maker at first to start piecing together videos. And um, I built things off of that. And obviously since then, my setup's gotten much improved, both in camera setup and editing setup. Um, but it's, it's come from this desire to restore traditional food knowledge to Native people. Um, and while my initial inspiration came from wanting to push back against these the epidemics of diabetes and heart disease and other diet-related illnesses. Um, there's so much more to it. And of course, in places that are classified as food deserts, and I use scare quotes for that um, because of the problematics of that term, we have to look at the food that we have access to now. And in the work that I do, I also try to deconstruct a lot of the very intentional work that was done to distance Native people from our traditional food systems. So thinking about all of that in a much bigger context, there's a lot of good folks working on access, and I'm trying to work on community excitement, mm -hmm. um, making sure people know what to do with those foods as they get access to them. That's, that's so awesome. And there's a lot to talk about and expand about on, in this conversation. And like one of the things I really liked was when I was reading the article that uh, SUNY ESF had shared um, on their Twitter or whatever, it, it basically you had a quote basically saying, look, I'm not trying to do gourmet food here. I'm just trying to like connect people to their food again for all the reasons. And, and then like, so it's really approachable, you know, and I, I think that that's fantastic. And then with the message around food sovereignty, let's talk a lot about that. I was watching your TED talk and uh, that was from like 2017, I think in Bozeman, where you were talking, I think it was called healing from trauma through traditional food waste. And it was amazing. It was, it was really good. It was powerful. Um, how did you, how did you get to that point where it's like, you got all this momentum going with Indigi Kitchen and then you're getting on Ted talks and like, what's that process been like for you? You know, honestly, I have just worked really hard to tell the story of the damage that was done to indigenous food systems in a context that helps folks recognize how we can reclaim it. Um, and so I'm a storyteller. Um, I grew up rich in the oral tradition of indigenous peoples. And so the work that I'm doing with food is linked to stories. And sometimes those are stories of deep trauma. Sometimes those are traditional stories um, that tell about our traditional ecological knowledge and our connection to our food systems. Um, sometimes those are the story of the time my neighbor called me over to her house when she was making rice aroni because she was in a panic because it said to put it in a saucepan and she didn't know what a saucepan was. And I had to tell her it was a pot. And I realized that our food education system is super messed up. <laughs> um, and, and so I am telling these stories of food. And food is already a great vehicle, obviously, folks. And to be able to um, relate these things. 
but I'm also communicating a lot of traumatic history that under different circumstances makes people shut down and get defensive. Um, you know, whether that's with uh, non-Indigenous people not coming to terms with that history or whether it's Indigenous people feeling like folks are attacking them for eating the preservative-packed foods that a lot of our diets have now. Mm -hmm. um, and so if I can tell these stories, if I can give this narrative um, that helps people break down some of those boundaries, I think it, it has found a lot of success just through those two mediums, stories and food. Um, and with that, you know, there's, there's a lot of positive change that can come out from that. Yeah, for sure. There's such a good connection there in the, your storytelling, connecting it back to food. And, you know, part of the TED Talk that you did, you were talking about decolonizing food and re-indigenizing food. The access around that, the, the bigger issues, like from a health standpoint, but also connections, spiritual connections and just um, self-identity and all of that stuff. But like, how would you provide a framework to people that haven't been in this discussion about what's at stake here and in like what you're trying to do with, with food sovereignty and what it is and like why it's so important. Sure. I realize that we've talked a lot about the background that I give and I haven't given any background. Um, so in indigenous food systems have been very intentionally targeted by colonial governments, um, both the U S and Canada in order to control native people. So when we're looking at, native food systems, uh, we look at, you know, everything from Haudenosaunee villages being targeted, not just the villages themselves to be burned to the ground by uh, George Washington's new army, um, but it was very clearly written that their food stores and their fields should be burned so that they may never plant it again. Um, that was very early, early days of the United States government. Um, and of course, that pattern continued across the continent. We look at the Plains tribes like the Blackfeet, myself, uh, that relied very heavily on the bison and the resistance they were posing militarily to colonial expansion. And so the 1850 Commissioner of Indian Affairs report wrote, it is cheaper in the end to feed the whole flock for a year than to fight them for a week. Um, it was a financial decision to eradicate bison and to force indigenous peoples into dependence on government subsidized food systems so that we would not bite the hand that feeds us, essentially. Um, and so this continued in different ways. Um, there was, of course, rivers that cut fish out of the diet of upstream tribes, as well as uh, destroyed irrigation systems for downstream tribes. There were, um, of course, forced relocations of people that put them away from the traditional foods that they know. You can look at, of course, uh, Potawatomi relocation from the Great Lakes region to Kansas and Oklahoma into areas with different plant and animal life, um, different seasons for growing. We look at a lot of these different incidences. And so the goal was very much reached in that a lot of Native people became very heavily dependent on rations. And then after rations, it was the commodity food program 
um, still implemented on reservations called the Food Distribution Program on Indian Reservations, FDIPR. Um, and now it takes the place of um, food stamps sometimes or uh, SNAP, which is often in communities that don't necessarily have uh, very great grocery stores or great grocery store prices, fresh shipments of food, things like that. And so a lot of this work to regain access to food systems, to make sure that our people are able to feed ourselves, takes place in a multi-generational knowledge gap where our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents grew up on different forms of subsidized food. And so that's the food that we grow up knowing how to cook. That's what we recognize as food. And so when we look at trying to restore traditional food systems or uh, wild game or, you know, community garden vegetables, whatever it is, we have to not just regain access, but regain all of the knowledge that goes along with it. And part of the reason my videos are accessible to families and to folks getting home from work is the reason I don't have culinary training. I'm not approaching this as a professional chef, but I'm approaching this as a home cook that's super busy and needs to figure out how to prepare a wild game when I get home from work at the end of the day. Um, and so that's the motivation that drives a lot of the work that I do. It's to build that knowledge base up, but to do so in a way that recognizes our ancestral knowledge and recognizes the modern tools that we have available. Um, Native people have always used the tools that we have access to. Um, and I think that using the modern kitchen and the conveniences that that allows demonstrates resilience, adaptability, and thriving in the face of um, a lot of damage that has been done to our food systems. Yeah, that's a great overview, Mariah. Thank you for explaining that. Really like highlights the point that like we're talking about access and like what you said about having an expanded kind of definition in terms of not just having access to places to hunt or access to land, but access to knowledge and how that was passed down. And so like there's so much knowledge out there, um, it, like regaining that access to that knowledge is really important. And that has to be part of the conversation, um, the bigger conversation about it. And I've, uh, what do you think in terms of like your community? I, I think like the food angle is so important. Talk a little bit about how you're approaching the food. You had mentioned that you know, you're not a, a chef, you know, you're not a TV chef or anything. You're just kind of approaching it from like a home cook standpoint, keeping it pretty simple. The recipes are really compelling uh, that you're putting on in DigiKitchen. Um, you want to talk a little bit about some of that? Sure. Um, I think that obviously food is something that everyone can relate to because we all eat <laughs> and that's been said in many different ways. Uh, but for native people, um, our, Traditional foods are often mistaken for our survival foods. Um, and I mean that as, you know, the ways that we think about the food that we could get at powwows is things like fry bread is a great example. It's a food that came out of the rations and the ration days and neither flour or milk or lard was ever a part of our traditional diets, but we made fry bread because it was something that got us through a period of time that would have otherwise meant survival. Um, commodity cheese is another example of a food that native people 
have incorporated into our identities. <laughs> um, they're, they're foods that stem from uh, dependence and this, these obviously very harmful, destructive policies. Um, so I make it a point to not target bad, quote unquote, foods. Mm -hmm. um, I don't tell people what not to eat. I think that there is a tendency of a lot of nutritionists, a lot of um, healthy eaters to go in and say, don't do that. That's killing you. Uh, and because people have incorporated that into our identities, when those things are attacked, you know, forever not good for you, right? People know that, but suddenly you're attacking their grandma and that makes people get defensive and it doesn't change behaviors. And so I focus a lot on the positives. I focus on the things that we have access to. I focus on the richness of indigenous knowledge. And in many cases, I link to the foods that people already know as traditional and they may have grown up harvesting or hunting in some way. And they're just finding a better way to communicate that. Um, so, or to prepare those things. So people may have eaten bison in some way, right? Um, a lot of people can buy bison burger at the stores, but making a bison roast because it's so lean may be different or challenging in some way. Mm -hmm. So I work to just show people another way to do that. And it makes a lot of things more accessible in that sense. Um, you get more ideas of how to use things. You know people with those ingredients that harvest them. You get in touch. You prepare things together. You make meals. Um, you know, if it's berry season, you can go out berry picking. Instead of just eating the berries raw, you now have recipes that you can use them for, um, you know, ways of preserving them that you can incorporate them into your diet at different times of the year. And so I'm trying to incorporate these little tidbits of people, of things that people have that they may connect to ancestral knowledge, but really put them into an everyday context. Um, traditional foods, indigenous foods are not just for ceremonies. They're not just for special occasions, but they can be incorporated into every meal. Um, three fifths of the food that's eaten around the world originated on the Americas and that in itself should recognize a huge source of agricultural wisdom that native people should be able to utilize. Um, it's amazing how many indigenous foods are eaten around the world and native people are, um, you know, still in many ways in many communities thinking in hot Cheetos and fry bread. <laughs> and so we're just trying to work away from that. Um, and not necessarily decolonize, not go backwards in time, but really re-indigenize and incorporate those things into our everyday life today. If I had to think of one word, it's approachable for people. You've got two-minute video clips or really short video clips. They're really simple. It's basic stuff. Um, you know, I was checking out some of your recipes like elderberry barbecue sauce and sunflower butter popcorn and like amaranth crackers and they all sound great too and it's not complicated it's stuff that people can do i love that that's great and you know 
I saw someplace where you had quoted, I don't know if this was in the Ted talk or not, but like your influences, your mom, I was reading an article, sounds like your mom was a, a huge influence on you, like food and cooking. I also saw you had a really cool quote from Winona LaDuke in one of your, might've been a Ted talk, but basically it said, you know, how can we call ourselves sovereign if, if we can't feed ourselves? Do you consider Winona LaDuke uh, an influence to you? Do you have other people that have really influenced your thought process around all of this and how you approach things? Sure thing. I think Winona LaDuke is a powerhouse, um, not just in the indigenous community, but in this larger sustainability and um, green development community. So she's uh, obviously super rad and does a lot of great things. Um, but she's working on different food sovereignty efforts back in her home community, I think White Earth. Um, and that's really cool to see. But yeah, I think my mom is also a huge driver of a lot of the work that I do, um, not just because of her work in food or pushing me to do cooking. Uh, she taught me how to cook when I was really, really young because she was taking a, an early childhood education class that talked about how kids can learn fractions from cooking. And she was like, oh yeah, that's great. So now I have an engineering degree that I don't use, but I cook. <laughs> um, and so she actually, um, I would dream up recipes when I was like four or five years old. And she told me that was fine if I tried out those recipes I was dreaming up, but I had to write everything down. So I have a file folder of things written in marker of like, one C B U T R or whatever. I'm just spelling words. However, my head made them make sense. Mm -hmm. And they're from when I was four and five years old. And I have cookie recipes that I could probably recreate today that I came up with because I had those, that understanding of the basic building blocks of food and what went into food. And so, you know, thinking about that was part of how I can dream up recipes today. It's having that basic understanding of the components and just saying, all right, but if I'm only limiting myself to indigenous ingredients, what do I have access to? What flavors can I tap into that other people aren't using, that they're not recognizing as food? What do people have access to right outside their front door for wild green? What can I make all of this out of? And to really bring those foods in. And I, I called it limiting myself to indigenous ingredients, but it's really, uh, I think, a much bigger expansion and thinking about all of the edible foods that are out there that people aren't using. Even varieties of foods that we know, like tomatoes and corn and, you know, these different foods that are indigenous, but have been cultivated into like very specific types that you can get in every grocery store. Um, and so, it's that experimentation mindset that my mom let me run with. And now I get to, now I get to do every day. That is so cool, Mariah. I love that so much. And I love the fact that it's too, it's like thinking about what's outside your door instead of being like really esoteric. Sometimes with wild food, like or anything like with dining or whatever going out, it can be, it can be a little esoteric and like kind of like, I don't know, exclusive, but like being able to just go outside and figure out what you can eat is, is really cool stuff. And when you have access to that, um, when you start looking for what, what's out there, what you can actually eat, it's amazing. Like, what do you, what's your go-to stuff? What do you like to eat when you're home on a weekend? When you think of, this is what I'm going to chow down on, what's your favorite? Oh, I tend to make a lot of 
things with wild rice. I bought a 50 pound bag of wild rice and I've been working through it for a few years now. <laughs> um, but I'll use a lot of wild rice because um, I can make it with uh, different types of curries really easily. Um, I have a whole bunch of frozen vegetables that are really easy to throw in, cook up real fast, um, and then different meats. So I have a lot of ground meat that um, I've processed, both um, elk and some deer meat. Sometimes if I'm lucky and one of my cousins gets a moose, I'll get some of that. And then different, um, different fish. So I love uh, a blue cornmeal crusted trout. I live on one of the pretty much the best trout fishing lake on the reservation. And so it's known for its premier fly fishing. Um, and so with our reservation being closed this year, we kind of got the lake to ourselves in terms of being able to go out in kayaks and go pull trout out of the lake. So have that really lucky to have that accessible. And then of course, um, different squash. I think squash is incredibly versatile getting to use zucchini to make little mini pizza bites or zucchini noodles. I like making a pad thai, but using zucchini noodles and maple vinegar instead of uh, rice vinegar and true rice noodles. Mm -hmm. uh, that sounds can, amazing. It, it worked out really, really well. I was thinking about it one time and I was like, oh wait, peppers, like bell peppers and chili peppers, all that's from Central America peanuts that's from central america like these are indigenous foods i can substitute zucchini noodles in and i can use all these ingredients in here that we're using in pad thais because again so much of the world has adopted indigenous foods into their own cuisine uh, and i was like i think i can make indigenous pad thai and so i did it because it's um that's the type of stuff that i do <laughs> just like um I love bison butternut lasagna. Lasagna has always been a comfort food. And to be able to take butternut squash and use that as the noodles and just make a nice rich meat sauce with bison, you can have a really, really good lasagna that you feel kind of guilty for eating. And you're like, oh my gosh, I was supposed to put a vegetable on my plate. Where is it? And it's like, oh wait, it's, it's the noodles. It's, this is perfect. And so that's one of my favorite recipes. It's one I recommend to people if they're going to try something off of my site, just because it's so simple to make a meat sauce with whatever type of ground meat you have, you know, if it's wild game, awesome. Um, and then to take a butternut squash, which is wonderful because it's again, so versatile. You can turn it into everything from dessert to soups to lasagna and incorporate that as a really rich, delicious sustainable way of approaching one of my favorite comfort foods. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> that sounds so good. That's so cool. I got to try that out. It's good stuff. You are active in so many leadership roles, like, you know, beyond Indigenous Kitchen and, and cooking and like, you're really like providing this accessible community for Indigenous community members, but you're also providing so much great leadership um, out there in communities like, um, and, and just events like Native Youth Food Sovereignty Alliance and like Champion for Change and Center for Native American Youth. So you're out there trying to affect change. What's that like for you? And like, what advice or wisdom do you share with your community members? What's driving you to do all that? You know, I didn't set out to go into leadership roles necessarily, um, but I have found my way into trying to be a positive influence on other Native youth or 
other Native people, regardless of age, um, that are looking for traditional knowledge and don't necessarily know how to go about finding that. Um, especially in the time of coronavirus, it's not as easy to approach elders and ask for those tidbits of knowledge. And sometimes, like I've said, um, you know, with our parents and grandparents and um, elder generations being raised on commodity foods, they don't always know traditional food knowledge. And sometimes it's really hard to ask someone that you believe is your last resource and to have them tell you they don't know and for them to also feel embarrassed about that. Um, and so I've tried to deconstruct a lot of those barriers and help people recognize, again, the accessibility of that. And I am fortunate and very humbled to be put in places where my voice is heard, but also I'm working hard to make my work become more of a conduit in the future for that information from elders and leaders that don't necessarily have the tools to make their own cooking videos. And so that's my next big project actually is going to be talking to native chefs and elders with traditional knowledge that are interested in sharing and documenting their recipes and getting them to talk about those recipes or information that they have to really build this database of indigenous foods. So it takes less away from my face um, and hopefully grows Indigikitchen as more of a framework for Indigenous recipes rather than just an ode to whatever things I dream of. Yeah, I love that. And what do you think, like, so you're so much value and like so much knowledge and like sharing so many good things with Indigenous community members and friends what's your message for non-Indigenous community neighbors and friends? Like, because I think when I look at this and like, just like the accessibility, there's so much that people can learn from and the, the wisdom, the physical health benefits of eating real food. What kind of conversations do you have like that, Mariah? I think that there's a lot of information in traditional local food systems that everyone can, um, incorporate into their uh, lives or being or understanding of the world. And so I think about, you know, just everyone recognizing, of course, whose homeland they're occupying and getting a better understanding of the ecosystems in that community. And maybe that's going out and berry picking, because I think even that small act helps folks recognize that little piece of the world that they depend on in part for their food. And I think when people start creating those connections, they can really build a web of understanding that encourages them to take care of those places and to really cultivate livable spaces and tear down this boundary between humans and wilderness. Right. And so I think, you know, if you have your favorite berry picking spot, you will, understand the damage that a construction project through that will have. You will see that not only will that destroy your berry picking spot, but when you're berry picking, you see the birds or the bears or the other beings that interact in that landscape. And you know that they're going to suffer the loss of their berries too. And you really create this knowledge um, just through being on the land 
But it, I think it also helps to have that vested interest in our own food systems. And not everyone needs to go out and find ways of harvesting or hunting 100% of their diets. But I think that just creating little connections, um, going out and becoming familiar with the edible foods in your land, um, on, the, on these landscapes, is beneficial to our own well-being and sense of place to the land itself. How, how is this food taking care of us? But how are we taking care of our food and the places our food comes from? And to really build this um, recognition, I think, also of indigenous wisdom, this recognition of not only the places you can find food, but the certain times of year that they're present, the type of um, methods that are needed to harvest them, and the ways to prepare those foods so that they're edible and delicious, obviously, of course. Um, And so really, really building all of this together. And I think the absolute worst case scenario, if you're like, nope, don't really have a sense of place, don't really get it, you're just going to build zombie survival skills. And I don't think that's ever a bad thing. (laughs) It's good advice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like that's funny. So building a connection to your place, I think is so important and, and the connection to your food. So thanks for sharing all of that. Um, I deeply appreciate it. And you are at SUNY ESF right now doing some grad work and you're a Sloan fellow. What are you studying there? Yeah, now I'm really looking at um, environmental science and specifically within this field of coupled natural and human systems. So working on merging that traditional ecological knowledge with more Western research-based scientific knowledge in a sense. So I'm really lucky that I get to study um, under Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is the author of Braiding Sweetgrass and obviously the most brilliant advisor um, that I could have. And so I'm lucky that I get to be in that space and that there's a recognition of indigenous wisdom and indigenous science as true science and really part of um, a really deep, long created understanding of the ecosystems on this continent. That is fantastic. I'm so envious that you get to work with Dr. Kimmer. Uh, she's one of my heroes, like Braiding Sweetgrass is an incredible book. And I've heard her talk on some podcasts like Ologies and other places. And she's just an incredible wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And being an ESF alum, it's like glad that she's part of the whole community there. And I think that's really cool. What an opportunity to be able to work with her. That's, that's awesome. What do you want to add? Anything that I have not asked you that you think is important to amplify? Anything I just like missed or skimmed over that needs a lot more conversation or just clarification? Anything like that, Mariah? No, I think that you covered pretty much the work that I do. Well, I'm glad to, and you're doing incredible work. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful that you're on the podcast here sharing your work. I'm really glad to support what you're doing. And uh, it really excited to see where it goes. Um, so it's really accessible. People, where can people find you? Uh, they can find you on YouTube, social, anyplace else, any upcoming events that you've got coming down? Right now, you can find me at indigikitchen.com, facebook.com slash indigikitchen, Instagram at indigikitchen, or YouTube at indigikitchen. Thankfully, my schedule has calmed down a little bit for the holidays. I don't have any upcoming events right now, Um, but I have uh, 
generally a calendar posted on my website of upcoming events. So people can check that out, especially since a lot of things are digital and they should be able to join from wherever they are. Awesome. We'll put show notes in the, in the podcast and Mariah, it's great having you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, good luck out there in the Elkwoods over the next couple of weeks and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.